Hi, my name is Pastor Tony Garbarino of Providence Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you tuned in to hear a message from God's Word. If you'd like to find more information about us, please go to providencefw.org, providencefw.org. We seek to be Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. So please enjoy now this message. Thanks for coming. Take your Bible now and turn back to uh, chapter, uh, rather, Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6. Um, again, if you go to Matthew and then back up two books, you'll be in the book of Zechariah. Uh, we're in chapter 6 this morning. We'll be ending chapter 6, those last uh, handful of verses, verses 9 to 15. Zechariah 9, uh, 6, verses 9 to 15. Before we hear from the Lord, let's go to him once more in prayer as we ask for his blessing upon the preaching, the reading and preaching and hearing, receiving of that word preached. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you, humbled in your presence, delighted, thankful, with hearts of gratitude that you have blessed us with so many blessings, uh, Lord, and mostly that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, and his word, Lord, we thank you that you've given us to know specifically these things and specifically of the way of salvation. What a privilege of being in your presence, Lord. We pray, give us now, we ask, ears to hear and eyes to see and open hearts to receive from you now. Lord, we pray that you would indeed arrest our attention and remove all of those distractions that swirl around in our minds and our hearts and help us, Father, to focus that we may hear and receive from you. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. And we do pray, Lord, that the instrument of your word now this morning and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord, as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So for the reading of God's word, the flowers, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word of our Lord endures indeed forever. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, it is our practice here at Providence to celebrate the Lord's Day uh, weekly. We recognize the blessing and the benefit and the sustaining grace that is uh, given to us through that sacrament. Uh, we are frail and forgetful people, indeed feeble in so many ways. Uh, we, need, we are in need of a great Savior to feed us, to feed us with himself, uh, to spiritually strengthen us by his Spirit. Um, and so again, due to concerns about uh, the virus, we have reduced that for a season. But it is always amazing uh, to me and how wonderful, how wonderfully consistent the texts are when we come to preach and the texts come and they relate to the Lord's Supper, to communion with the Lord, um, and how appropriate all texts are to the Supper. And that's precisely the case again uh, this morning, um, and that with its emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that shouldn't be a surprise to you, and I'm sure that it's not a surprise to you if you've uh, been here for very long at all. We make it a point, again, that we desire in all that we do in our teaching and preaching, um, we make it a point that we desire to be, again, Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. Uh, these are things that you can tell those who ask you, uh, tell me about your church. You can tell them these same things, because that is indeed what we desire to do. Um, and I'm reminding you again, I guess what I'm saying after all, uh, is that what the Bible is all about, it's all about Jesus. It's about Christ the Lord from beginning to end, right? From the very early pages of revealed history, uh, uh, the very beginning of redemptive covenant history, all the way through, it is about the Lord. It is pointing to and the unfolding and the satisfaction of that promise of the seed that will come that we need to conquer the seed of the enemy. Um, and we come this morning to a transition, as we mentioned last week, a transition in the book of Zechariah. We're going from these night visions into something else, the rest of the book, the remainder of the book. In this verse, these verses this morning, this passage, verses 9 to 15, um, they act as this transition, as this hinge, remember. There's these, if, as we, if we look at the structure of the book of a whole, uh, it's like a, a two-paneled you know, construction with a hinge in the middle. And this is the hinge between those visions and the rest of the book of Zechariah. And we see this when we look at uh, some of the verbal cues that we have there, right? Zechariah says in, verse six, uh, in chapter 6, verse 9, And the word of the Lord came to me. Right? And this is in contrast to the night visions that came one after another after another. And they were marked off with those words, I lifted my eyes and I saw. Right? I lifted my eyes and I saw. I lifted my eyes and saw. And then now we come to, but the word, uh, I'm sorry, and the word of the Lord came to me. Right? This is an indicator of a transition. And so these verses, verses 9 to 15, um, they really are the main point of the visions. Um, in Zechariah. Some call this passage, verses 9 to 15, an appendix, right? But really, it's the main point of the visions. It's not merely an appendix, and it's something appended to the visions. It's the main point, right? It's critical uh, as we wrap our minds around what's going on here, this gospel uh, overview that the visions gave us, right? It makes, uh, makes all the prophets that they saw possible, all that he saw, all these visions that were to come this text makes all of that possible. And what is it that makes the visions possible? These foreshadowings of the gospel, as we've seen these past number of weeks, these pictures and promises, what makes it all possible? Well, Zechariah's visions have outlined it all. And now this passage addresses how it is indeed actually all possible. Right? God calls us to return 
and to remember. And he calls us to repent and he causes us to repent. And he promises to his people in this book. He says, I will have final victory over all of my enemies and all of your enemies. And I will restore and build my kingdom through the temple of my people. And I will take away that can, your contaminating gross sins. And I will clothe you with pure white garments. And God says, and you will be righteous in my sight. That is his promise. I will fill you with my spirit, he says. And you will be empowered to obey and serve and follow me. And give me honor as my very people. He says, I will call you to live repentant lives. And as you do so, and as I fulfill it all, bringing your hearts and all of your enemies in subjection under my feet, after all of that, there shall be peace and rest. Right? Shalom forever. This is what he's told them in the vision so far. This is what we've been getting at. This is what he's been pointing to. But how? Right? How will he come to do these things? Well, the Lord accomplishes his redemptive plans precisely through what we see this morning, the enthronement of the temple-building priest, right? The enthronement, that is the king-ifying, right? The coronation, the enthronement of this priest who is a temple-builder. Because of the work of this king-priest, we have hope and encouragement in this life and the promise of such in the next. You have an outline there in your liturgy of the way that this passage breaks down. Um, in general, we see in verses 9 to 11, the captives plunder. The captives plunder. Uh, and then in verses 11 to 12, we see the crowning of the priest. Crowning of the priest, verses 11 to 12. And then finally, we see in verses 13 to 15, the council of peace. The council of peace. Uh, but first, the captives plunder. Right? We see there in verses 9 to 11, it says, and the word of the Lord came to me. Again, this indicator, a change is taking place. He says, take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and, and who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and take from them, what? Silver and gold. And make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. There's this arrival of a group uh, that come again from Babylon. Right? We don't know exactly who they were, how many people there were, but we know that they came from Babylon and they came with silver and gold and riches. And this, of course, echoes, right, as we think about this, coming back from captivity, from exile. It echoes back to us those long ago, those who came from Egypt in the Exodus, right? They came, the exiles that came, the captives came from Egypt. And like the exodus from Egypt, these people ransacked, as it were. They plundered Babylon. Like the people of God plundered the Egyptians so long ago. And they come back to the land, and through them, God gives them victory. And he gives us today a message, through them, a message about how God deals with the problem of sin in his people. Right? And what, is, what happens there providentially? What does God do? He orders, and he uses this pagan king Cyrus at the time of Israel's captivity to send some people back to the land. And we know more about what's going on here in Zechariah when we look at other books in our Old Testament, particularly Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 tells us this. 
It says, and let each survivor, this is uh, Ezra 1.4, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about to, all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and with goods and beasts and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king, it says in verse 7, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Right, so even those are restored, and they come back from exile, back to the house of the Lord that will be built. And what's happening here? What's going on? Right, we have here a powerful picture in the Old Testament that it is God who works to build and prosper his church. It is the Lord who causes these things to happen. Right? It is the Lord and his providential plan. Right? We have this pagan king. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't fear the Lord. But he sends the people back to the land to worship in their place and to serve their own God. And he pays them to do so. And he gives them everything required for the task. What a picture of the absolute sovereignty of God Almighty. What a glorious picture of our sovereign God, a God who is sovereign over the hearts of men, even pagan rulers, even rulers in our land. Isn't that the thing that we need in our lives right now, to be reminded of a king not so far away, not so transcendent, not his actions not so distant that they have no impact today. He still is sovereign. The Lord does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he still is sovereign over the rulers of this world this is a comforting thing. It's a comforting thing, not only that he rules over the, uh, the kings and the rulers of this world, but that he rules over your very hearts. Right? He has conquered your heart for him. And isn't this the very fact that we need to know that God can work all things for the good of his church? Indeed it is, and it's encouraging to know that whether it is a huge church bursting at the seams, whether it is a, a, a more modest, faithful church with limited parking and, and, and less than optimal bathroom facilities, the Lord is sovereign. Right? Whether it's a shrinking church or a growing church or a church that's strained because of the fallout of this global pandemic, the Lord rules, the Lord reigns, the Lord is sovereign over all, regardless of whatever other factors. We know and remember that the Lord is still the Lord. He's still the Lord. He is sovereign over all things, political rulers, cultures, societies, even wicked forces. Right? They are what? They are but a dog on a leash, restrained by our king, and even over our own hearts, as I said. He is Lord, he is king, and he is sovereign. It's great encouragement, great encouragement for us today. You fear, and we fret, and we regret, and we are fatigued, and we are stressed in this life. Remember our king is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all. And we must, in all of these strains and pains of our life, continue to seek him and flee to him and press into him 
for life and comfort and hope and refreshment and deliverance. We look to Jesus and we look away from ourselves. We look to Christ and away from this world that seems to be circling the drain. And we look to the one who controls all things, even the world and even the drain. And like you, right? Think of this like you, your neighbors and co workers and family, they too are probably a bit freaked out by all that's going on this year, right? And they, like you, like me, need relief and refreshment and restoral of hope. They need rescue from their worry and from their sins. What a glorious opportunity this provides for us, right? What a glorious time for you who have the answer to these things. Right? Their hearts are sensitive. There's a heightened sensitivity to the need, to their need, and to the Lord working things for focus, right? For focus. All the chaos in today's world. What a great opportunity in Providence to tell people where life and freedom and hope alone is found. What a wonderful time to tell people where they can come. They can come and hear words of truth and be loved by Jesus and through his people with the love of Jesus. To come and hear the answer to all of these things. Life, forgiveness, cleansing, security. Right? And it is all in Christ alone. right? Jesus the Lord. Jesus the Lord. Dear Christian, tell them. Tell them. And bring them. And we'll tell them. And we'll love them. So these exiles are coming back. And they didn't all come back at once. We know they come back and there's a second wave we hear about in verse 9. It's coming back, the second wave to the land. And as we read this, we don't look not only to Ezra, but we look in places uh, like uh, Haggai, right? Remember, Haggai was um, a fellow, older, contemporary prophet to Zechariah. Um, and all of this corresponds to what he tells us. Uh, Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 2, it says... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? Speaking of the temple. How do you see it now? Is it not as if nothing in your eyes? And Haggai tells them, Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, right? The king and the priest, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O peoples. All you peoples of the land, declares the Lord. Why? Work, he says, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am with you according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, right? Glorious. He says, fear not. And then in verse 7, he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of the nations of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill the house, this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Right? Peace. And so we have the captives' plunder here. The captives' plunder by the Creator's providence. And it pictures the coming peace that the Prince of Peace will accomplish. 
And then as we continue in verse 11 uh, into verse 13, we see next the crowning of the priest. Right? The crowning of the priest. And Zechariah says again, he says, Take from the exiles, verse 11, silver and gold, and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Right? Zechariah is to go to them and to take the offering of gold and silver, and he's to make a crown. Make a crown. Uh, now, here's another point in the text where we have to um, look at and make some decisions. As I've mentioned before um, in Zechariah, the Hebrew here is can be very difficult and pose some challenges um, in translating it. And indeed, people do. Um, uh, they do come across some challenges when they translate this from the Hebrew into the English. And this is why, if you look at different translations, um, English versions of the Bible, that is, uh, you see that there's a little bit, there, there's some differences, some variation, right, in the English uh, wording, in the verbs, in the singular, plural, or in the pronouns. Um, and again, this is not a super truth-altering uh, um, issue, but just for clarity, if you have a different translation, or if you have, if you're looking at the ESV, the word crown there, right, where it says, take from silver and gold and make a crown, right, the word crown, the word crown in verse 11 there is plural, in the Hebrew. It's plural. It's a plural noun. But the verb that's connected to it is not plural. It's a singular. It's singular. So there's a decision that has to be made. Are we going to go with the plural or are we going to go with the singular? Or was it, was it that way intended to begin with? And I would say uh, the latter. It's, that's the way that it was intended. Right? Which, would you, which do you go with? The vast majority of translations, English and otherwise, uh, make the noun agree with the verb. Right? So that's why it says crown. Right, take a crown, make a crown, singular. Right, the old authorized version uses the plural. It, it, makes, it pluralizes it. It makes it, uh, the verb agree with the noun. Does that make sense? Um, so it says, take crowns, right? The King James Version, the authorized version. It changes to the plural. It says, then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them, you see, on the head of Joshua. Well, I just point that out for clarification. It doesn't make a huge amount of difference, um, but... The ESV, I think, and I would agree with most translations, um, they go with the singular crown. Um, and they do that for a number of reasons. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. And this makes sense, right? We don't want to get lost in the weeds and the complication of all the grammar and the con construction of it. Um, but the gold and silver were taken to make a crown, right? It's probably there are two metals, therefore it was a plural, plural noun. But they're making out of gold and silver a crown, right? Because two types of metal, one crown, one crown interwoven with gold and silver, or interlaced, or connected, or locked gold and silver into one crown. The crown of silver and gold twisted together, perhaps. And so it exp it's expressed as a multiple, as a plural. Another reason that this could be plural, where the verb is singular, is that it's the usage here is uh, is, is, a, is what's common in Hebrew. It's a superlative plural of excellence. Right? Using the plural to indicate the highest, the most excellent, the best crown. Right? This is very much like the word for God in Hebrew. One of the words for God, Elohim, is plural. Right? It's a superlative for excellence. Right? And so with that out of the way, right, this, we have this multi-layered crown, as it were, gold and silver. But what of the crown? Right? What of it? Well, naturally, when we think about the crown, and we know the history of the Old Testament and uh, what goes on there, the crown would be set on the head of whom? It would be set on the head of the leader, the ruler, the governor, the king is crowned. 
And who is that in this context? Right, as we look at Zechariah 1 to 6. The royal prince here is Zerubbabel. Right? He's the governor. But it says, no, it set, the, set, set, set the crown on the head of Joshua. Not Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest. And that would have been an attention getter for those in this situation. It would have shocked them for a number of reasons. Right, think for a moment of the signal that this would have sent had Persia got word of this crowning of a king in Jerusalem, the place where I, the king, just let them back to and paid for them to rebuild, and they're crowning a king. Right? This would have signaled a bit of rebellion, an act of rebellion against the Persian throne. So to the con contrary, placing the crown on Joshua, the high priest, he had no claim to royal authority, no royal claim. He was not, it was not a political act that was going on here. It was a prophetic act. It was a prophetic action. Why is that? Well, very quickly, we know that this is the case. It was a prophetic, symbolic action pointing to something else because the kings of Israel, you know this, why? they were from the line of David. Joshua was not from the line of David, so he's not eligible to serve as a king. And then we look at verse 12, and it talks about, it connects this crown to the one, it says, whose name is the branch. Right? That is, and this, of course, is well-established, as we read in Jeremiah 33. It's a well-established name for the Messiah, the branch. Joshua wasn't the Messiah. And thirdly, we see the crown isn't given to Joshua to wear and keep. Right? It doesn't say, place it on his head and go and serve. Just place it on his head, and then what? It's taken from his head and placed in the temple as a memorial. Fourthly, we see in chapter 3, Joshua and his associates are called what? Right? We see this beautiful picture of the, uh, of the priest with filthy garments, and he's given clean garments, he's made clean to minister. But it says what? Joshua and his associates are called men who are a sign. Right? Symbolic, it's prophetic, a sign of things to come. And so this continues here, Joshua, a sign of things to come in chapter 6. Uh, and then the final reason that we see that this act of placing the crown of silver and gold on Joshua the high priest, that it's an act of, it's a prophetic symbolic act, is because Joshua was the high priest, and that office was what? The very office provided visual symbolism to something that God was saying and declaring and doing through his priests. Right, the high priest was what? He was a mediator, representing man to God and God to man. And this was the high priest. Uh, this is what he symbolized, what he stood for. It's what he pictured. The God-man, visually picturing the true mediator who would come. Of course, we know this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the mediator, the greater high priest, the great king, the greater king, the one who would come and once and for all, out for the sacrifice, once and for all, never to be done again because it's a perfect sacrifice. Uh, but we look here at verses 12 to 13 in Zechariah 6, and it says, it says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. I warned you when we started this that this is such rich and thick and deep text, the theology of Zechariah 3. Much, much could be said here, but at least we get bogged down until 2023. We're going to 
uh, try to be brief. This is a prophecy here. It's a prophecy and it's pointing to something else. And the actions of Zechariah that he's seeing and hearing are conveying, the Lord says, the actions that I'm doing to them through my prophet is pointing to something greater that I yet will do. And it all points the people's hopes to whom? To the Redeemer, to the Messiah, to that branch that would come to fruition in all of its eschatological glory, its consummate, full and final glory, Jesus, the Redeemer. And something very important here is going on about the Redeemer. Something very important is revealed. Right here is the Lord of hosts crowning Joshua, the high priest, referencing this council of peace, this pactum salutis, as it's called. We read also that he sits on his throne. Right? And so here is this one. He is the priestly king. He's the kingly priest. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this should also be shocking and striking to you. This should be an attention getter to you. Because these offices were always kept separate, distinctly, decidedly, specifically, purposefully, um, quite severely in the Old Testament. Right? And you may be familiar with an incident that happened. There was a king, a time when a king was on his throne, and he tried to be a priest. Right, it's, I believe it's 2 Chronicles 26, if I'm not mistaken. He had a very long reign in Israel. And towards the end of his reign, he comes with a censer in his hand, right? A censer, the thing that carries the incense. And he fixes in his mind that he'll offer incense to the Lord himself. So I don't need a priest. I'm the king. I'm the king. I have the right to approach the Lord myself. Just me. I don't need a priest. I can do so because I'm the king, he says. I don't need a mediator to bring me to God's presence. I'm the king. And he comes into the presence of the Lord with the incense, with the censer of incense, and he offers, and the Lord what? He strikes him with leprosy. I guess he can't come just because he's the king. And the king goes away leprous, and he goes in shame because he tried to make himself a priest. And where do you remember was he struck with leprosy? On his forehead. Why is that significant? It is significant indeed. Remember the priests bore a plaque on their arraignment, on their garments. And the plaque on their forehead had something engraved on it. Do you remember what it was? Holiness to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. And the king, who tried to be his own priest, fled from the presence of the Lord. Instead of his forehead saying, Holiness to the Lord, his forehead cried out, Unclean! Unclean! Be away from God's presence. Never in God's presence. Unclean leper. The two offices were separate. And even the king, the great king, sovereign over all of his land and people, he too needed, what? A redeemer. He needed a redeemer to enter in before the Lord himself. He needed a mediator, someone, someone to mediate and to bring him before the Lord. And so in Zechariah 6, the crowning of the priest would have been a shock indeed, a paradigm shift for certain. And the Lord brings together, you see, and he explains Christ's offices, at least two of them, king and priest here. And why is this important? Right? Don't... Uh, try not to get lost in, you know, it's not just theological jargon that we're talking about. It's not just technicality. 
This is important. And listen, this is this is something. There's something. This is the very thing that we need. The very day for our redemption. Today, the Lord Jesus, our priest, King. Right. While jo while Joshua had no right to kingship, Christ does. Right. Christ was from the line of Zerubbabel, the descendant of David. Right? Jesus came into this world as a great king of kings and lord of lords. And he also came as the great and final high priest. Again, the book of Hebrews unpacks this gloriously, beautifully. He is, of course, our prophet, right? Revealing, proclaiming God's word, his will for our salvation. But here we see on display king and priest, king and priest. Together, Those were the two great mediators in the Old Testament. The king represented what? God's law. God's law and rule and justice to the people. And the priest represented God's mercy and grace. And by sacrifice, would lead the people into God's presence. And here we have one figure. And in this one figure, there's a combining of the two offices into that one person. What a glorious Savior. Indeed, right? Our king, priest, Savior. Brothers and sisters, do you trust in Christ who reveals the will of God to you for your lives and for your salvation? Do you embrace Him and His will and His teaching for the good of your soul? Do you submit to Him as your King and honor Him as your Lord? And do you love Him as priest? You love Him as your priest. That might sound strange. You might have not th thought in ways like that before. Jesus, my priest, I love thee. And you know, this is where uh, glorious, simple categories and simple education and in simplest form in places like our catechism are so helpful. Expressing the teaching of God's word. Oh, what glory. Jesus, our priest, right? It says what? He executes his office of priest in what? In his once offering of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, and to reconcile us to God. And in making, as priest, continual intercession for us. What a glorious promise. What a glorious truth. The Lord making intercession for you, His people, as your priest before the Lord. Again, this isn't just technical, cold, abstract theo jargon. Because listen, and this is important, if Jesus was not a priest, right? if he was not a priest, then he could speak as prophet to you for all of eternity. And he could give you the longest life, Methuselah-like length of life, and speak to you, and you could hear every one of God's glorious promises, and not a single one of them would work for your good, or for the good of your soul, or the salvation your very self, if the priest had not offered his sacrifice, right? And if the priest had not given himself over on your behalf, then what? The wrath of God yet remains upon you. Our king is a priest. Praise God, and I pray that he is your priest and king, brothers and sisters, because you know, you either trust in your own righteousness or you trust in Christ's righteousness. You either are resting this day in the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are hearing him when he speaks to you as prophet from his word without a priest interceding for you before God. And if that's the case, 
you will suffer eternally for the violation of the king's commandments. Unless you have a king who is also a priest. That's glorious stuff, serious stuff. Do you rest in this king and priest difference? Do you rest in him? Do you rest in this prince? Do you trust in this Lord Jesus, this one enthroned and crowned as priest and king? I pray that you do, and I plead that you do so right now. Dear friends, worship him even now. Submit to him. For with him there is mercy right, and abundant redemption. Abundant redemption. Well, that's the captive's plunder and then the crowning of the priest and underneath it all, right, what undergirds and is foundational and the grounding of how and the why the Lord accomplishes his great plan of redemption is what? It's this little phrase that we see in verse 13, the council of peace, the council of peace. We sometimes refer to this as the covenant of redemption, covenant of redemption. Uh, and we'll conclude with this, and just very briefly, our time is short. Look at the text there again, starting at verse 12, the end of verse 12. Again, for he shall send, he shall, uh, the branch, right? He shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Council of peace shall be between them both. Right? And what's the point of this? Between whom is this council of peace? Who is the both? Well, in the context of the passage, it's the Lord, Yahweh. It's between Yahweh and the priest king. It's nothing less than the covenant between the Father and Son before all eternity. The covenant of redemption. This covenant between the persons of the Trinity to work redemption to all those for whom the Father decreed. And for all those whom the Father decreed, the Son will come and He will die and accomplish that redemption for them. And for all those whom the Son died and accomplished redemption, the Spirit will come and apply that redemption to them in time, perfectly, without failure. What wonder and glory. This glorious unity and purpose between the persons of the Trinity. This is not cold theological jargon. It is life-giving, life-affirming, life-describing wonder for the people of God. And that is what is said to be accomplished here. It's what is accomplished here. God's covenant, you see. Remember, he covenanted with David, King David. And he said that one of his descendants would sit and rule and build his temple. And so Zechariah's visions here, his vision is not retrospective looking back. It's prospective, looking forward. It points to the final consummate establishment of that promised Davidic priest king to sit on the throne and rule forever and build the temple. And it's anchored in what? The covenant of redemption. It's anchored in eternity past. Council of peace. And it points forward into and through eternity for you. Right? Not people out there abstractly, but for you. He decreed that you would be saved and he would draw you and he would die for you and he would save you. It's mind-blowing, right? It's awesome. Yahweh and the Messiah. 
made a covenant in eternity, which is revealed in God's covenant promise to David. And that typological crowning that we see here, again, typological crown is placed on the priest and then put in the temple as a memorial. This typological crowning points forward to the ultimate fulfillment of that intra-Trinitarian covenant between the persons of the Trinity. We see this, of course, borne out. We don't have time this morning in the rest of Scripture. We can look at places like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, or elsewhere. Ask me later if you'd like. But what are some of the more glorious outworkings and accomplishments of this covenant? Well, listen to the rest of the passage. Listen to the rest of this prophecy. In verse 14, And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. Right, The crown goes in as a memorial to all this glory for the people, for their strength, for their remembrance, for their growth, for their sustenance. Verse 15, And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. Right? And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Again, there's too much to unpack here. But later on this Lord's Day, maybe take some time in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, particularly verse 22, and 1 Peter 2, 5, and think upon and reflect and pray through and see the connections made there between the temple and the people of God. Ephesians 2 particularly talks about those who are far off, right? The far offers are brought near and made one new people from the two, the near and the far. They come near and they come and make with the near people a new people of God in Jesus, right? That wall of hostility is destroyed in the body of Jesus, the king priest. And they come and they do what? What happens? They build the temple. And according to the New Testament, remember, recall this thread as we pull it through all of Scripture, but here in the New Testament, right? Jesus came, remember, and it said, He tabernacled, He templed among us. And He spoke, that was in John 1, in John 2, He talks about Himself as the temple. And because we are His people, and we are united to Him, both Jew and Greek, right? The far off and the near, we are united to Him, and therefore we are the temple of Christ. We're the temple with Christ as the cornerstone. And then finally, look at that last line in Zechariah 6. The last line there. It says, and this shall come to pass, listen to the language, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This will come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord. And we see here in this line, a deliberate echo of the covenant that the people made, you remember long ago in Deuteronomy 28, with the Lord. Remember, if you do this, you'll be blessed. Blessing, 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 here, there, and everywhere, in the city, everywhere. If you obey. And if you break the covenant, you'll be cursed everywhere. And like the covenant with Adam, it didn't go well. Adam failed the covenant, and he's what? Exiled from the land. Israel, a corporate Adam, failed the covenant, and he's exiled from the land. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, he covenanted with the Father, Luke chapter 2. He covenanted with him to redeem a people and build them into the very holy house of God. And it is through this Jesus, purely and simply, 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, where life is found. Only in the priest king who died for you, his people. Only in this priest king. He didn't fail to keep the covenant. He kept the covenant for you. The covenant's been kept. And by virtue of that, you enter into all the blessings that he merited for you because you're united to him. He kept the covenant, yet he suffered ultimate exile. He was forsaken by God because of our sins. He dealt with the punishment of that sin deserved and needed. And he dealt with the righteousness that was needed as well. Right? He obeyed where we didn't and couldn't. And he paid so that we would not need to anymore. It's been fulfilled. And God's just wrath was poured out on its, in its fullness on this priest king. For all of you who trust in him. May we remember and rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoice that he has conquered your hearts and your enemies, every last one. And when you fail and wonder and blow it again and again, and your heart is broken and weary and fragile and sore from your sinning and despondent from life and struggle and everything that's going on, Remember, dear Christian, remember, the one who rules and reigns is the very one who gave himself for you. Not in the abstract, but for you. Each of you who are his. For all of us who call the name of Christ. We are his and he is ours. And So you go back down from this spiritual Mount Zion, back to the land that is not your own for the rest of this week, and you go back assured of his love. Go back reflecting that love on everyone with whom you come in contact. When they ask you about your weird, out-of-place, calm love in the storm and in the stress, you tell them about this great priest king, Jesus Christ. This one who had an interwoven crown, not of silver and gold, but of thorns. And he wore that crown of thorns on the cross under a sign that declared to all, Here is the king. Here is the king. And he will come again in the hearts of all who bend the knee in love and devotion. And he will give them peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Father, we rejoice to give you praise. Uh, Lord, we are awed at the wonder of your love. Uh, We are overwhelmed at your grace and your mercy and your tenderness and your patience towards us. Father, we thank you and praise you that you've done everything that needed to be done for us to have life and peace and freedom. Father, we pray that you would help us to know and acknowledge the truth of who we are, united to Jesus, our King and Priest, raised to walk in newness of life. Oh Lord, help us to walk in newness of life. Father, we do pray that as we go throughout this world, especially those who are going through pain and suffering, debilitating as it may be, help us to know that we do not suffer without cause, Lord. Help us to know and realize and remember that your strength shines brightly through our weakness. Lord, give us strength and courage. Lord, help us to focus our attention upon you and all that we do. We pray that you would help us to believe your word concerning us. Believe this word. 
concerning all that you have accomplished and that you will one day consummate. We thank you and we love you, Lord. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, about Providence, if you're in the greater Fort Wayne area and would like to visit us, please go to our website, providencefortwayne.org. If you'd like to give, if you were blessed by this message, if you'd like to have more information about the faith or about growing in your faith, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with us. Thank you.